And when they asked me to fill in this morning, they did not know where we would be in the book of Acts, so they said, pick somewhere else. So we will be taking a break from the book of Acts and talking about what happened before the book of Acts. And so if you would join me in John chapter 21. John chapter 21. We're going to focus really on kind of the precursor to Acts. Uh, the first 12 chapters uh, of Acts really point out the, the uh, obedience of Peter as he answers the call to ministry. And so we're going to take a step back a little bit further to that reinstatement of Peter into ministry in John chapter 21. And so we're going to read the first uh, verses 1 through 19 just to kind of set the stage, but we're only going to focus on the last few verses there. So in John 21, beginning in verse 1, it says, After these things Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he, was ma- and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing, and they said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? With... You don't have any fish, do you? I feel like I've got the, the South Texas version of this, I'm sorry. They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifest to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So this is the risen Lord. This is uh, the third time, at least in John's gospel, that Jesus manifested himself to disciples. There was was other ways and other times. And he calls to them after they've had a night of unsuccessful fishing. This miracle they're familiar with happens. Peter leaves everybody to do the work, jumps into the water, and he finds out the Lord swims the land. Uh, They pull it up. They find that the Lord has already made breakfast. I like how John MacArthur says, do you know how the Lord makes breakfast? Breakfast does it. So they have this miraculous catch, this miraculous breakfast. They pull up and they see the risen Lord. And so 
After this, they have this breakfast. Jesus launches into these questions directed solely at Peter at this point. And it's really important because this morning we're going to look at this master's call and the motivation for ministry that Peter is going to face. Is that Peter is famous for a lot of things, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. But sometimes we forget to look at the motivation that was behind what Peter did as he launched into Acts, as he was obedient and faithful to the word. And so motivation is a key thing. As we see that Jesus begins to call Peter and reinstate him into ministry, what is his motivation going to be? And that's what centers upon this. So let me ask you a couple questions here. What motivates you? What gets you to like build your enthusiasm to do things? So like first thing, what motivates you to do like your favorite hobby or your favorite thing? Just love of it? Okay, that's good enough, right? Are you like all really quiet now? Like, I don't know why I do my hobby. Or are you doing this? What is my hobby? <laughs> I don't know what I do. Okay, what motivates you to do homework? What's that? Music motivates you to do homework? Yeah, I think that's a big one there. Okay, desire to get a good grade? Coffee? But who else? What you got? The consequences in the future if you don't. <laughs> You're getting nods over here. Yeah. What do you got? Do it so you graduate. Your mother? She's your motivator? Jackson? For knowledge? I wish my motivation was always for knowledge. Most of my homework was just to get through it. If I finish it, I will make money eventually. Okay, okay. So see, you got a different motivation for your hobby than you do for this. What about for doing chores? What's your motivation for doing chores? Not getting, Not getting grounded is a great motivator. Money? Money. Money. Ruby. Mom your mom is happy? Sean. What is that? Training and discipline? Like you're motivated to be trained and disciplined? Good on you. Oh, one more. Just going with the flow, and I was like, look, everybody else is doing chores. I guess I should also. So your motives matter. What motivates you matters. Because you're gonna, your motives to do your thing you enjoy, your hobby, whatever it is you like to do, it's going to be totally different than what motivates you a lot of times to do your chores or your homework, especially when you don't want to. Uh, but what motivates us has an impact on how we'll approach what we do, how much we will desire to do it, and how important what we are doing is to us. And so we're going to see this in this passage today, that Jesus is calling Peter to follow him after his failures, and that Christ's purpose for Peter has not changed at this point, but the necessity of love is going to be his foundation to follow Christ. And it's also going to really challenge our definition of love, because usually our own definition of love is not sufficient, but must be submitted to and shaped by the Lord. So we're really going to look at verse 15 on this morning, and we're going to have to run pretty pretty head forward through this just so we have time to, to really dig into this. So beginning in verse 15, it says, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon son of Jonah, John, sorry, Simon son of John, do you love me more than these? So this is the, this is the third time in John's gospel after his resurrection that Jesus made himself uh, manifest to his disciples. So let's take the context here for this question. I think a lot of times people jump into different aspects of the question, some of the grammar, some of those things, but sometimes we forget what happened right before this. Um, Peter's usually most famous for making these great statements and then having that contrasted against moments of failure. Kind of like in Mark uh, chapter 8, he confesses that Jesus is, is 
is the Christ. He's, he's the eternal one. He's the Son of God. And Jesus says, okay, this is not from you. This is from God. And it's this incredible moment of Peter's obedience, right? And then after that, when Jesus is now teaching that he's going to, have to, he's, he's going to sac- be a sacrifice for the sins of the world, he's going to, to lay down his life, Peter rebukes him. Could you imagine trying to correct God? And then he hears the sad words, get behind me, Satan, because his motives were in the wrong place. So that's kind of what Peter is famous for, these great statements and these great moments of stumbling and failure. So what had Peter done recently right before this? Well, on the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, Peter states that he would die for Jesus in John 13. And then he's told that he will deny Jesus three times that night. And also he says this in front of everybody. Notice there's no indication that Peter was taken aside and told quietly, hey, you're going to deny me three times. He was told in front of everybody. And the other disciples even agreed with Peter. We read in one of the other gospel accounts that they said, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll die with you. We'll, we'll go all the way to the end. After this, Jesus uh, pulled Peter and the two sons of Zebedee to pray uh, before his arrest and commanded they keep watch with him. He comes and finds Peter not sleeping not just once, but three times. And even tells him and commands them to pray so they don't fall into temptation and they don't do it. And then when those resting Jesus come, we find in, in, in John 18 that Jesus is in control the whole time when he says, I am, and they step back and stumble. He's in control of the entire unfolding of events, but what does Peter do? And I like this. Some of the, I like some of the memes online for this. All the other gospels are like, then one of those who were with Jesus drew a sword and struck the high priest. Then one of those with Jesus struck the, the high priest, and John's like, it was Peter. Peter did it. Peter cut off his ear what he did. And then Jesus confronts Peter's short and low-sidedness, heals the wounded man, and continues his mission to the cross. During the first and second fake trials of Jesus, Peter denies Jesus three times. We find in Mark that he's even cursing and swearing at one point. And at one point in Luke 22, we find that the Lord looks directly at Peter and makes eye contact, and Peter leaves weeping bitterly. Though Peter obviously cared for the Lord, and had been party to all that had been done in Jesus' ministry. Ultimately, Peter ran out weeping bitterly, broken, broken, having not been able to fulfill what he declared he would do. He declared, I will die tonight for you. I will do all these things. And yet, on his own, he had failed to do that. Here, though, we find Peter in Galilee, where the risen Lord told him and the disciples to meet him. And so can you imagine the mix of emotions as this first question is launched at Peter? From his failure to the angel's commands to have the disciples and Peter go and meet him in Galilee. And now the question is contrast here. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Days earlier, it had been, I'm going to stand with you even if the other disciples forsake you. And now it's Simon, son of John, do you love me? So let's frame the question here. This question has been taken a few different ways, and I think it's important to to take a quick look at three different ways it's been applied. When he says, do you love me more than these, it can be taken to mean, a lot of times people say, do you love me more than all these fish and all these things that you've done in your lifestyle? And though I don't think that really captures everything, I think it's worth looking at. Some others say that Jesus is saying, do you love me more than you love the other disciples? And uh, some take it to say, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? And I think it's worth just taking a quick walk through these really quick. So let's explore uh, each of these. So when he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Um, let's look at, do you love me more than all of this that I provided today? All the fishing, all your lifestyle that you were out doing. Now, I don't think he was turning away from the Lord when they were fishing the night before. I think they were waiting for the Lord. They were where they were supposed to be. But that was his trade. That was his lifestyle. That was what they were familiar with. Remember when Jesus called Peter, what were they doing? Fishing. And so it would have been easy for the disciples to simply return to their old lifestyles, right? 
The popular movement had faded. All the crowds had drifted away. Now they were living in fear of their life uh, for the Jews and, uh, unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. And not to mention, they had many examples of people who had fallen back, who had just walked away when it got difficult. Even those who were doing well in life. Remember the rich young ruler? You know, hey, what does it take for me to be saved? And when he was told and confronted with giving up all of those things he had, he walked away. He was deeply grieved. What about the crowds after Jesus fed the 5,000 who were seeking the provision of God and, and, and the political king? It says when they heard his difficult teachings, many of his disciples turned away, withdrew, and were not walking with him anymore. How easy it could have been for them to simply go home, get a job, be successful. They could have even taken the lessons they learned from Jesus' teaching and applied them there, here and there to their behavior, right? No more fear of the Jews, no more living on the road, no more traveling all the time like they had been, and could have found a nice, comfortable home to settle into. And though there's nothing wrong with homes and, and working and honoring God and what we do and thanking God for the homes and provision he gives us, they would have denied their calling to follow Jesus and to proclaim who he is, rather than simply applying a couple lessons to their life. Regardless of our walk in life, Jesus is to be the most valuable above all. He's made us. He saved us from himself. He saved us from his wrath. He saved us for himself. He saved us by himself, and he saved us for the glory of himself. Jesus does not, therefore, deserve a sideline seat or portion of our lifestyle. Rather, no matter your family, job, or direction of life, he deserves to be loved and held higher than all these things and the people that will make up your life. Jesus is the king. God alone is worthy of worship and the first place point of our life. So do you love me more than your lifestyle would be a great way, question to ask out of this. We could get some application out of that. But I think there's more to it. How about when he says, when you love me, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than the other disciples? Do you see me as more precious and important than men? Does Peter see Jesus as more precious and holy with a greater understanding of who he is now? Now that he has risen, now that he has paid the price on the cross, he is sitting there at breakfast with the risen Lord, does he get it now who Jesus is? Many came to Jesus during his earthly ministry. Remember, he was very popular at the peak of his ministry. They came, why? Miracles, got some free food, got to see these incredible things. Many thought he was a great teacher. Many thought he was a prophet. Some were wondering if he was the Messiah. But most of them would draw the line there. They would only come to him acknowledging that far. And unfortunately, you live in a world that sees him like that today. Um, as a matter of fact, um, in the marketplace, um, I find that most people are willing to accept Jesus as long as you just reference him as a good teacher or a philosopher or somebody that you just like his morality. Um, even the world will, even, I mean, uh, others will even go as far to say he was a prophet. Even Islam recognizes that Jesus is a prophet. Um, but why will they not go further? Why, well, why would my, most hearts not go further? Because then we have to bend the knee to him. We have to submit to him as Lord, as God. And that's why a lot of people would refuse to go that far in Jesus' day. It requires submission to him and his word and his call to repent of our sins and surrender our idols. Remember the rich young ruler we just said, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all those that Jesus would call out, there was either to repent and change their lifestyle, change their viewpoint to be under the way God said things should look, or to hold on to it. Here, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than just people? It is crucial that we understand who Jesus is, as this is everything. As many have said before, you can sincerely want to serve God. But if you are doing it without Christ or with the wrong understanding of who Christ is, you can be sincerely wrong. Sincerely, being sincere is not what gets us there. It's, it's truly understanding who Jesus is. Jesus says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
that he had glory with God before time began, that he who was dead is now risen forevermore, that he's the Son of God. Any view less than this of Jesus as the eternal God and Savior is dangerous, blasphemy, risked eternal judgment. And so if we're getting wrong who he is has that kind of danger to it, could you imagine Peter, who's about to be challenged with the life full of ministry, if he has a if he has a wrong understanding of Jesus at that point, and it risks that much, you can count out a life of ministry. You can count out suffering through persecutions and things like that. Think, how would, how would Peter and the disciples, as you've read through Acts, how would they stand against the persecution and threats against their lives? Living as social outcasts, giving up the pursuit of comfort, and so many other aspects, if they didn't realize that this risen Savior is God that he's more than just a man, what would happen is they would fear people just as much as they liked his teaching, and they would be completely ineffective. And I pray that you do not find yourself crippled by fear of people, their thoughts, opinions, or what they might think of you. And I would challenge you, if you ever find yourself in that place, to, to, to really spend so much time in Scripture growing your picture and your understanding of who Jesus is. So that question, do you love me more than men? is another great question to consider because then, loving Christ more than people, we might find the freedom to consider what pleases our Lord and King rather than what pleases people's opinions. But there's another one I want to look at too is do you love me more than the disciples love me? These are all good and applicable ways to apply this question, but here's why I think this is a point that we should note here is remember what Peter said the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest in Matthew 26. Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Think about that. Before he's told he would deny Jesus three times, he says, even though all of these will fall away, I won't fall away. That's a bold declaration, right? Peter made a declaration that he was so loyal that even though all the other disciples would fall away, he would not. And think, at some point, Peter really cared for Jesus. He drew a sword in the garden. Now, he attacked what might have been the only unarmed man there. We don't know. But nevertheless, he was going to make an effort to stand. We have to make sure we don't take too much stock into ourselves. We can't be overconfident. There's actually, if you've got a MacArthur study Bible, I actually love the notes he has under 1 Corinthians 10, 12. That verse says, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. I like what it says. Underneath it is really short and simple. The Bible is filled with examples of overconfidence. Our confidence cannot be in ourselves, nor should we be overconfident in our ability that we'll always just do well or we'll just do what's right. Um, talking to youth for years, I, I, I've I, so many examples. Uh, they hear somebody made an egregious error in their life or a sin, or they see somebody doing something in the world, and this, this phrase always comes out, man, I'll never do that. Or, man, I'm glad I'm not like that. And they say these things over and over again because why? Well, think about it. How will you just never do those things? How will you never just sin in your life? How will you never stumble or make a mistake or have to repent of something in your life? Hopefully, it's not because of overconfidence in yourself. Well, I just go to church. Well, I go to a church with deep teaching. And you do. That's great. But make sure you're not becoming overconfident in your ability, in your walk. I mean, think about that for a moment. Peter didn't say, I'll stand if all others fall against you because, Jesus, you'll hold me. He didn't say that. He says, even if everybody else falls away, I'll stand. Overconfidence. You can do the same thing. See, if you don't realize that we're just as prone to sin as everybody else will, we, we won't value prayer. We won't value the renewing of our mind in God's word. And we'll have deceived ourselves in our confidence of our ability, forgetting that we're in a battle. 
We're a battle against sin in our life. This is a war that wages the rest of your life. What's great is, is as God sanctifies the believer and you grow past these sins and you finally conquer sins in your life, guess what's going to happen? You're going to confront new sins that you have to come confront and, and, and overcome. And uh, I like when I've listened to some of the, the Q&A sessions with these, these, these gentlemen that have preached for decades, and they always ask them, they're like, does it get easier as you get older? And they said, well, in one sense it gets easier is the more you pursue Christ, the less sin you see in your life. But the problem is, is the more you pursue Christ, the more you hate what sin remains and you struggle with it. Our confidence should never be in ourselves; It should be in him who saves us from our sin. And so we should have that, that awareness that we have no ability in our own. We don't have an ability to come to Christ on our own. We need him to call us. We need him to hold us. We need him to rescue us. We need him when we read his word to illuminate our heart to the sin that's there. We need him to open our hearts so we can accept the correction that he has for us or the encouragement that he has in that passage that we're pouring over. So many times that we, we begin to think that we're doing well, we're studying, reading enough, but we should be completely dependent upon him who holds us. As you know, in that example, Peter's heart was ultimately displayed when, the pride and, uh, when Peter's pride and his heart were, and his limited strength were exposed there. He had no ability to stand on his own that night. He denied Christ three times. And this is how we all are without the Lord's grace. Um, we can start to see now why this question doesn't just say, Peter, do you want to follow me? When he starts to say, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Because we can see that love is the critical motivator. And I would challenge you now to, to understand that your idea of love is not sufficient. Because it should be always growing. As we come up against the Lord's definition of love, as we begin to understand what love really is, uh, I used an example a long time ago. I uh, got to do a wedding, and uh, we were talking, doing counseling with some youth, and talking to the youth around them, and realized that the love you have when you marry your spouse, that first day you think on your wedding day, that is the most, I, I'm, I'm in love. This is the most I'll ever be in love. And then 20 years later, you look back, you're like, I didn't even know what love was. And then you think about someone who's been married for 60 years. Your definition of love grows and expands. And so I would say here, if Jesus is challenging Peter here to understand this question of love, then it would be very helpful for us as, as Jesus is pulling out and drawing out Peter's heart and his love to be exposed and be considered. We should take a few moments to understand what God says of love and, and how it relates to serving him. I know we're still in the first question. Trust me, we pick up the speed and get to the last ones pretty quick. But I really think this is a lot of the framing we have to have. Where all other motivators will fade, they will fail you. Whether it's just to, to be good, not get in trouble, all those things we listed, when it comes to love, genuine love, that is the one that will sustain our motivation as we serve, as we serve God, as we obey Him in whatever situation we're in in our life. It will be what sustains us. And so just a quick highlight here of a few things. You can jot these down. I'm not going to have you flip to them because we're going to go through them pretty quick. But in Matthew 22, 37 through 39, Jesus puts love at the heart of the two greatest commandments. Because what else can motivate you to endure all the things we're going to endure in this world and still love God with our all and love our neighbors ourselves? right? In Deuteronomy 6, 5, we are to love God with our all, our heart, soul, and our might. Um, I love when I hear seasoned saints of God when they're praying, and I hear the, the prayer that we should always pray when they say, Lord, Please forgive me where I did not love you today with all my heart, soul, and might. Whew. How was the last time you prayed that? That's a toughie, isn't it? 
Because every day we, we fail in that, and yet God's love for us doesn't change. Yet in the greatest commandments, we're to love God with our everything, and likewise, we're to love our, love our neighbor as ourself. As a matter of fact, even where he's quoting in Leviticus 19, further down in 19, he even says you're to love the foreigner as yourself, because what were those foreign nations going to eventually become to Israel? A little Old Testament trivia there. They're going to become their enemies. And so Jesus makes that clear in Matthew 5. Now, you don't just love those that you like. You love your enemies too. Loving your parents enough to obey them does a lot better and goes a lot further to properly motivating you to do the things they're asking you to do other than just being a rule follower or just trying to, to get through it. Because guess what? At the end of the day, if you truly love your parents, you're going to do it anyway. But if you're just trying to check off a box or you're just trying to get through it because there's a reward or something like that, that's only going to work until you really disagree with the chore. Or what if you're in a conversation with them and you really feel like you're right and they're wrong? If there's not love there, man, those other motivators start to fall out, don't they? Think about following Christ in life. That love motivator is critical. We see in Deuteronomy 11 all the way through Deuteronomy 30 and Joshua 23 over and over and over again is that right before God says, and obey all the statutes, it says, you shall love the Lord your God. In light of everything that the nation was going to, to, to face, a young nation, a, young, a group of people, a congregation that God is calling out, they had to love him as their proper motivation. As a matter of fact, Jesus even, I think the, the pinnacle of this is in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Love is the foundation of faithful, joyful obedience. In this series of questions, Jesus is reinstating Peter. He is calling him back to ministry. It is fitting then that he calls him and says, do you love me? As it is the core there. We even see in other places that God's word tells us that um, love cannot have split allegiance. In Matthew 6, 24, you can't have two masters. You can't pursue, lovingly pursue two masters. You're going to love one, hate the other, right? And places throughout the Bible, Amos 5, Micah 3, uh, Romans 12, you can't love good and evil. You can't have split alliances. Love must be dedicated. It must have a sole purpose and focus. Again, that marriage of 20 years doesn't happen because the guy loves his wife and loves his hobby equally. It's okay to have a hobby, but love can't have a split allegiance. And I think my favorite is to remember where love comes from. In John 3.16, we see that God's love for the world and sending his only begotten son contrasted against verse 19, against man's love for darkness instead. We realize that God loves us regardless of, of our ability to love him when we bend the knee to him. When we're his people, he loves us. He has demonstrated his love in an incredible way. Mark 10 shows us that Jesus even felt the love for the rich young ruler who was going to walk away. Romans 8 tells us the power of the love of Christ and the power of God's love, that nothing can separate us from him. And 1 John 4 says love is from God, not that we loved him, but he loved us. He loved us first, and that God is love. Now do you understand this question after Peter's failure, after Peter's denial, after Peter not thinking that the Lord would even have a place for him possibly? I, I couldn't imagine what I would be thinking when he looks at him and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It is crucial to understanding Jesus' question because this is how Peter would remain faithful because without this love, he, there's no way he'd be faithful. So this is a love that says it's not dependent now on Peter's abilities or how he thinks things should go or any other version of who Jesus is. 
This is not a love that's fit into the sidelines of a lifestyle. This is not a love that sees Jesus as merely a teacher or another good person, but seeing him as God the Savior. And this is a love that doesn't merely mean an affection for, but a deep submitting love to Jesus. The critical motivator of love must be submitted to God because when it is misplaced, it errs. Think of all that Peter did in his desire to protect Jesus. It's obvious that he loved the Lord to some degree. Uh, but the problem is that Peter's version of love was clouded by these factors. They weren't submitted to the Lord, wasn't defined by the word. He reverted to his own way of making his choices. And as we've stated, he didn't have the high view of Jesus. So consider now the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than your life, more than others? And note Peter's initial response there. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I think it might be pretty early to ask this, but I'll go ahead and ask it anyway. How would you have answered? Not to answer out loud, just think that to yourself. How would you have answered? Peter affirms not only his love for the Lord, but confesses that the Lord knows his heart. So Jesus gives the first command there. He calls him and says, tend my lambs. And we've just looked at that crucial motivator of love and why it's core to Jesus' question, but even more so now as we see Jesus' commanding call. This command here means to feed the sheep while they're grazing and is a reference to what a shepherd does for the flock. Coming from Jesus, we understand that this is the role of an under-shepherd or an elder, an overseer, which you see here at the church. And it, it means ensuring the sheep are nourished. As MacArthur puts it here, it serves as a reminder that the primary duty of the messenger of Jesus Christ is to teach the word of God. Jesus himself painted an important picture for the difference between a good shepherd and a stranger, one who's not a good shepherd back in John chapter 10. He contrasted how he would care for the sheep versus how others who have come before him do not. Let's look at this real quick. In John chapter 10, he says this, the shepherd enters honestly to be with the sheep. The hired hand, uh, is, it flees, doesn't do this. The thief comes a deceptive way. He says the, the doorkeeper that's hired to protect the sheep knows the shepherd because he's familiar and that Jesus himself is the gate that leads the safe pastures. Jesus says the sheep recognize his voice and his calling, and that he goes before his sheep and they follow because they know his voice. Think about it. That means the shepherd is so familiar with the sheep, so close, so intimate, that they know his voice, they recognize it. I grew up watching sheepdog trials. I grew up out in, in, in West Texas where herding was done aggressively, and it blew me away that in this time, the shepherd didn't have to have dogs. It didn't aggressively herd the animals use their voice because they were with the animals all the time. That is the good shepherd. It says the shepherd comes with true and loving motives. He lays down his life for the sheep and for all the sheep to save them. And then he contrasts that against the thief and the stranger who enters deceptively. They do not follow the stranger because the sheep don't follow the stranger because they don't know his voice. He doesn't spend time with them. He has unloving motives and abandons them in their time of trouble. So if this is the example that Jesus left as a loving shepherd... And how he tends his sheep. What does this mean for Peter now when he says, tend my sheep? Do you love me more than these? Tend my sheep. Peter, one of the sheep, is now called to tend the sheep and would have to grapple with Jesus' example. And honestly, so do we. As, as sheep, as fellow believers, we would, that would seek to love God in our, with, all, with our all and to love our neighbor and to love other believers or ourselves, we also have to think about what that example means. We could go on pretty extensively of his example, but just going back a few chapters in John 13, here's a couple of things just to pull out what Jesus says here. Jesus says in John 13 that he loves his own to the very end, whereas Peter had fled at what he thought was the end. 
Later on in John 13 and 15, he says, we must love each other like Jesus loved us to the very end. No lesser standard. And by this, the world will know we belong to him. And John 15, 13 tells us what the greatest love is, to lay down one's life for his friends. And he tells us that if we love him, we'll obey him, and that's how we're his friends. If this is Jesus' example for us to follow, then how must Peter and us follow that? How can one give his life for the sheep and not be consumed with what they want? How can they give their life for the sheep and always be thinking about how to nourish them and, and remain with them constantly? And the answer is we must, we must love the shepherd dearly and we must love those the shepherd loves dearly. This is what this portion of the scripture is, is that Jesus is calling Peter into ministry to the purpose that the Lord had appointed for him back in Matthew 16. That calling for Peter would require a life of serving Christ, leading the apostles and the church, enduring persecution, sacrifice. It was not a call of something to do on the side. It was a call that would require his entire devotion. To tend the sheep means to be continually devoted to spending time with them, leading them, feeding them, and finding good pasture for them. And it would challenge Peter's overwhelming motivation. It would have to be supreme love for his Lord. And we'll see in just a minute that Peter got that. So I would encourage you also here to see the love the elders, the pastors, your small group leaders, and other leaders have as they pour into you and in this youth ministry as caring deeply for those whom the Lord loves. And then we get to Jesus' second question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Why the second question? There's a couple different reasons that this could be. First is that when uh, your iPad crashes, there we go. Uh, first is when uh, Scripture, God highlights things and emphasizes them a lot of times through repetition. Remember the scene, Peter is sitting before the risen Lord, and after all that, he has, all that has happened, he's asked if he loves him, and his answer comes pretty quickly, right? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Jesus doesn't let Peter get away with that that easy, does he? He makes him really draw out the heart. So many times in Scripture, the Lord is drawing out the heart and the faith of people to expose their heart and to draw out faith in folks. I like how Borkert writes this. He says, Jesus probed Peter until he opened the wounded heart of this would-be follower. Off-the-cuff replies and well-meaning superficial responses to the risen Lord will not work in the call of Jesus to the life of discipleship. Jesus forced Peter to learn the hard lesson of a changed life. Everyone who follows Jesus must learn what real believing and real loving Jesus means. The repetition of these questions truly call Peter's broken heart to the front and his faith to the surface and pulls him forward for examination. Have you ever had somebody ask you the question and then you answer and they just look at you and ask the question again? My kids get that all the time, you know, and, then, and, and I don't know about you, but I've had that happen to me and immediately my, I'm, I'm, I'm automatically anxious. I'm hesitant. Oh, what did I say wrong? What did I do? And it makes us look at our answer. Were we accurate? It makes us look at, oh, did I respond the right way? It makes us really begin to look into it. And I've even been asked the same question four times before I apparently got it right before, because I was a pretty dense kid. So, um, Peter provided that quick response to that first time. Kind of like, of course, you know I love you. And as we walk through the Gospels, as we see Jesus drawing out the faith, we see that the second question now continues to pull it out to the surface. That first quick question and that first quick command is followed by the second one. And as we work through these passages, these questions should not only challenge Peter's definition of loving the Lord, but should also inspire us to start growing our definition as well. Another reason for another question is probably because it's hard to ignore the fact that Peter denied the Lord how many times? Three. I are all hesitant. Uh, he denied him three times. And how many times did he get, does he get asked here 
if he loves the Lord. Three. It's kind of hard to miss that, isn't it? Peter, in the face of what was the darkest hour and three opportunities, denied Jesus, even cursing. He has gone from this crushing load to now having a miraculous breakfast with the Lord on the beach. And Peter had rushed many times into answering so many questions with uh, results being hasty actions afterwards. So another thought as well is, is Peter also made that declaration that he would stand if all others fell in front of everybody. Does it say that Jesus pulled Peter to the side here? No, he's being asked in front of everybody again, do you love me? Three times in front of the disciples. Imagine that having God question your love for him in front of everyone that you said, I'll stand for you. And having God ask, do you love me? But we see through the first 12 chapters of Acts, Peter would be called to lead these and others through proclaiming the blessed hope and wonderful news of Christ. So there's no side for, there's no chance for, there's no time for stepping aside or hidden conversations. This is the Lord hitting Peter head on with his call to ministry and challenging where his heart needs to be. The Lord was laying all bare here for the edification of Peter and his faith and the growing of his understanding. And even then, the second time, Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So this time, Jesus responds by telling Peter that as a result of this love, shepherd my sheep. And this call doesn't differ too much from tend my lambs, except that that shepherding word is used directly. Um, this has been used throughout time. I actually did a little bit of a word study. Throughout the Greek, it has been used many times uh, for political leaders, religious leaders. But you don't even need that. All you have to do is go back into Scripture and find that God has referred to his leaders that were supposed to minister to his people as shepherds over and over. I think one of the most just blaring condemnations of the leaders uh, is Ezekiel 34. If you ever want to see how serious God takes what shepherds do, what elders do, Ezekiel 34 is a pretty good way to see that. He says things like, Woe, shepherds of Israel, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them. And he finally closes out with, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out, as a good shepherd cares for his herd. Remember what Jesus did in his ministry even. Who were the shepherds of the day? Pharisees, the Sadducees, didn't he call out and condemn them so many times for their hypocrisy and their unbelief? Yet here, Jesus is saying in submission to the love Peter states he has for the Lord, he's being called to shepherd the sheep. Not to belabor this point, but where all the other shepherds had failed was in their lack of love and reverence for the Lord and their lack of love and concern for fellow sheep. They often forgot that they themselves are one of the Lord's sheep and of his pasture, and they neglected their dependency on the Lord that they were called to, to cling to as well. So the great news is that Peter would get this. I would challenge you, we're not going to read it here, but I would challenge you to write down 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, and take a look at that later. Peter gets it. He gets what a shepherd is. Peter writes in this portion talking and describing what it is to be this overseer. He encourages them as in, in the first verse of that. He says that he's one of the same, a fellow sufferer and a witness. He doesn't come off as higher than them. He describes the motives of overseeing the flock and not out of compulsion, but with a heart voluntarily wanting to do so. What motivator would cause somebody to do that? Would it not be love? He clarifies that you can't do this for gain, but out of eagerness for the benefit and obedience of the, of the sheep. Don't lord authority over them, but strive in your whole life to be an example to the flock. And finally, in line with these questions that Jesus is asking Peter three times, he closes that section out in verse 4 by saying we must keep our heart and hope fixed on Jesus, the coming chief shepherd. Peter got it. That love for fellow believers, leading from an example, 
That's much better, I think, in 1 Peter 5 than swinging a sword in the garden, don't you think? Can I challenge you? I know we're, we're running out of time. We're getting close. You're getting tired. The, the tryptophan from the turkey is in full effect. I would caution you here to be careful as we continue to have our minds renewed by the Word of God and as we're always seeking Him. Don't have quick responses. When you're hearing the Word preached, when Chris is, 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 is going through the Word on Wednesday nights, don't have a quick response that, yeah, I would do that, or I would do this. Like Jesus does to Peter's heart, let it be drawn out here, and let it, let it really come through to, to consideration before, before the Lord's Word, so that you can properly have the correction applied, or the encouragement applied to your heart and life. And finally, Jesus asked Peter a third time, and this is the part that most people ask is why we haven't talked about the Greek words. If you're familiar with this, most people have preached about that there's two Greek words. Jesus is using one Greek word for love. Peter's using a different one. And on the third question, Jesus uses Peter's word and asks it out. I think it gets taken out of context a lot. I think it overshadows the meaning of the, the, the purpose here. And so I don't want to dive into it. It is in Scripture, so it's worth looking at. But all the early commentaries say that they don't really point out the difference of the words. They just point out the fact that, that at this point, Peter is asked a third time by Jesus Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says that Peter is grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Unlike with the prior answers, this time, Peter has no room to hide here. He's asked three times, do you love me by the risen Lord? He's asked in front of everybody who was at breakfast, and he's now asked with the word that he was using. Whatever comfort that Peter had in his responses before is kind of crashing down around him. And how does he respond? He petitions to the Lord. Peter says to the Lord, Lord, you know all things. Totally different than before, right? Not, Lord, I will stand for you. I will do all these things. It's, Lord, you know. You know now. You know my heart. Peter is now turning to the Lord who knows his heart to give him the answer, to, to, to know it, to show it. And Peter, Peter pleads with the Lord who knows all things, putting his trust in him to know his heart. This is the introspection and consideration we need when we need to examine our hearts before God's Word. Like I said, beyond just hearing, when we approach God's Word through personal study or the preaching of the Word, when we take in what Scripture says, this petition provides a glimpse into the level of prayer and understanding that we need from the Lord, who knows our hearts, so that we can rightly examine our hearts, apply that correction and encouragement, and assess where we are, our true state, before His Word. This highlights how much we can miss if we have short answers and short thoughts when we're coming before God's word. And finally, after this position, Peter says, you know that I love you. And then Peter uh, gets his third command, and he's told to, to tend his sheep again. Peter's not to remain broken or in despair. He's not to continue to wallow in the fact that, oh, I failed, I failed, I failed. He's to repent, he's to, to love the Lord, and he's to press on in that purpose that God has called him to. And that's Peter's purpose fulfilled in the last two verses there. In verses 18 and 19, this is the coolest part of this. It says there that uh, Jesus tells him, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this, Jesus said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. That's really encouraging, isn't it? Do you love me? You're going to serve me. Do you love me? You're going to serve me. Do you love me? You're going to serve me. Hey, you're going to die for me. But here it actually is encouraging. Because what did Peter do the first time? He said, hey, I'm going, to, I'm going to stand with you to the end. 
He ran, and now Jesus says, this time, this time you will stand with me to the end. You will glorify me all the way to the end. So can you imagine the mix of emotions there for Peter? He's had his love and his heart drawn out before the Lord, and instead of looking inward, he's looking to the Lord. He's, he's finding this, this motivator of love is for the Lord is what he has to have. We see through the scripture that Peter gets it through Acts and through the epistles he writes. And here, um, now that he's, he's called to depend on Christ and to look to him and to submit that love to him, he's told that he will, he will love the Lord all the way to the end. And then Jesus, Jesus calls Peter to his mission finally at that and says, follow me. I think a couple things to have as we get ready to pray out. Um, Jesus promised to Peter never changed. All the way back in Matthew when he said that he would be a part of building his church. It was founded in Christ, not in Peter's abilities. And so too is our salvation. So too for the believers, our walk with Christ, it's not found in our abilities, it's found in Christ. And that's why we know that no matter where we find ourselves, we don't, if we do find ourselves struggling, if we do find ourselves having to repent of sin and coming back, we know that, that his promise doesn't change. It is, he is faithful because it depends on him and not our abilities. And we find also that... Um, we should always have our hearts truly open and considering what God is calling us to, to have our definitions of love and faith and hope really grown by God's word as we come before it every single time. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for just this time to be in your word. I thank you so much for these students that are, um, that are here on a, on a holiday weekend um, with, uh, with hearts open, minds open, and with your word open before them. I pray that um, you would just give us the encouragement uh, throughout this week and throughout our, as we grow into whatever it is, the, the ministries that you have us to do, um, because no person is called just to be a sitter in a church. We don't just sit and consume. We all have a, a ministry of some sort of the church to, to love on other believers and to be a part of the flock as we love you with our all and we love other sheep. I pray that you would just continue to grow us in this encouragement that um, your purpose for those who love you uh, never changes. It's not rooted in our ability. It's not rooted in, in what we do. It's, it's rooted in your love. And Lord, that our, I pray that you would also have us have the reminder that if we were truly be grounded in love for you, that, that submitting love to you, the greater picture of who you are, that motivator will carry us through the things that we deal with in this life, through difficult times, through great times, uh, much more than anything else would. Lord, thank you again for this time and for your word. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.